Thank you, ladies, and thank you, Stephen. Not many of you know Stephen wrote that song. The, uh, the lyrics do appear in the hymnal. The lyrics are not original with him, but uh, what we just heard he wrote. And uh, we're going to sing it next Sunday, isn't that right? As a congregation. So uh, it was beautiful. People have uh, varying perceptions about Christianity, and uh, particularly about people who devote their lives to ministry. When I uh, introduce myself to people that I don't know, I frequently do not reveal to them, at least on the front side, what I do for a living. And uh, the reason that I tend not to do that is because people have these perceptions that they've built up in their mind about what a minister or a pastor is, and I'm, I want them to see me as a person first. I want to get to know them as a person before uh, all of these other things enter in and, and create these misperceptions. I uh, will never, ever forget uh, the response from a former friend of mine who was the best man in our wedding when uh, Back in 1986, I told him that I was resigning banking and uh, was going to be going to seminary. And uh, he, uh, his response to me was, uh, why would you leave banking? And then he said, oh, I get it. I know why you're leaving banking. White suit, TV evangelist, all that money, I've got it. Now I understand why. And uh, that really hurt me, as you might imagine. And in fact, that severed our relationship, not from my end, but from his. And I've never spoken to the man again. Why would, um, why would he say those things? What would lead someone to say those kinds of things? Well, part of it was uh, he wanted to hurt me. He and I had been atheists together, and I had been converted to Christ, and he had not. So I think part of it clearly was a response back for that. But part of it also had to do with his misperceptions with regard to what it meant to give one's life to the service of Jesus Christ in a, in a role of a pastor. And I think part of those misconceptions were brought about by what was going on in evangelicalism at the time. This was back in 1986, and there were a number of very prominent evangelical ministers who were taken down by scandal, both sexual scandal and financial scandal. And so I think that he took that and kind of added that together and came up with what would turn out to be a very cutting response to my announcement. You know, hypocrisy is an old, old sin. It begins in childhood, and it's something that we all experience to one degree or another. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 together this morning. That's page 1127 if you're using a pew Bible. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, and... As we look at this text together, we're going to uh, examine the fifth danger 
that Paul has for us here in Romans chapter 2, the fifth danger of growing up Christian, so that we will recognize again that even good kids need Jesus Christ. Paul says, beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 2, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. To be a member of the Jewish race was to enjoy certain religious privileges, certain advantages over the rest of the nations of the world. There's no question about that. The danger comes, though, is when those privileges gradually give way to a sense of self-righteousness, a, self, a, a sense of self-deserving, and that it's no longer seen as a privilege conferred by God, but rather a right that somehow we are entitled to. That we are favored by God because we deserve it. Paul, here in verses 17 and following before us this morning, is going to address the issue of hypocrisy. The issue of hypocrisy. And Paul is intimately familiar with hypocrisy. If anyone is, is um, perfectly set up to be able to speak to this issue, and particularly the, the hypocrisy of Judaism, it would be Paul. Paul is a former Pharisee. He was raised within Judaism. He knew it intimately. He was familiar with all of the privileges and prerogatives that came to Israel in comparison to the rest of the world. And so he is going to address it from one who was on the inside. And he's going to make here a number of statements that the Jewish nation and individual Jewish people of the first century could easily identify with. He's going to make this series of statements about them. He's going to highlight their privileges. And the statements he makes are essentially correct. The things that he is going to bring up are essentially correct. The problem is they have become the basis now for an arrogant attitude. And that's what he's after. He's looking to point out the disparity between what they professed and what they practiced. What they professed and what they practiced. And in fact, that's your outline this morning if you're looking at that handout. It's a very simple outline. It's what you profess and what you practice. And he is going to expose their hypocrisy. And the reason he is seeking to expose their hypocrisy is he's trying to crush the false hope that they have accumulated in their external religious privilege. 
They have come to rely on the privileges of God that has been entrusted to them as somehow that is what is going to make them right with their creator. And he's going to disabuse them of this knowledge. And in the process, point them to the reality that the righteousness of God comes in only one way, and that is through faith in God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look together with Paul at the dangers first of hypocrisy. This is the fifth danger of growing up, children, uh, growing up Christian, the danger of hypocrisy. Now, grammatically here in verses 17 through 20, Paul gives that there are six verbs. Okay, and I just tell you that because these six verbs create a, a useful skeleton for us to kind of hang our hat on this morning as we're going through this Jewish profession. Six verbs here. And so these six verbs represent six different aspects of the Jewish profession with regard to their privilege and prerogative. OK, it just kind of summarizes what it means to be a Jew. The first privilege here is in verse 17, and it is their covenant, their covenant. But if you bear the name Jew, first verb there, bear. OK, so if you bear the name Jew. This speaks of their covenant, their covenant. The word uh, Jew or the name Jew first appears in the scriptures back in 2 Kings 16. And it originally refers to those who were residents of that section of Palestine occupied by uh, the tribe of Judah. Over time, though, it began, it was expanded beyond that to come to refer to all who were descendants of Abraham through Isaac. And so by the time Paul is writing here, this uh, this name Jew to be a, to be a Jew, to be a descendant here was considered a badge of honor, a badge of great distinction. So when he says here that if you bear the name Jew, he's saying you are bearing a very good name. It is a good name that you bear. It is a, it is a name that points to a long line of renowned and pious people. It has a history that is unequaled in the annals of human history with regard to miracles, prophets, poets, kings, and the great lawgiver himself, Moses. So to be a, to be a Jew, to be a descendant of Abraham through Isaac all the way up to the current time was, to be, was a good thing. It was a good thing. It implies membership among the chosen people of God. It speaks as opposed to the heathen of those who are assured full access to the privileges of the covenants of God, the covenants of God. You remember through the Old Testament, God made first with Abraham and then following a series of covenants with his people. This, the covenant with Abraham, of course, in Genesis 12, the covenant through with Moses in Exodus 19, the covenant with David, Second Samuel 7, and then the future covenant through Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. So to be a Jew was to have access to the full covenant privileges of God. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter two, verse 12, speaking to the rest of us, the Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time, that is before you came to faith in Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To be a Jew, to bear the name of Jew, is to be a, a, a member of the covenant people. So his first profession is their covenant. Secondly, it's their security. If you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, that is their security. They are relying upon the law. 
Now here Paul is speaking about the five books of Moses, but beyond the five books of Moses to the entire revelation of the Old Testament. This forms the people of Israel, the Jew, as to what their God expects from him. He knew exactly what God wanted. It, it encompassed God's covenants, God's blessings, God's cursings, God's warnings, God's promises, God's rituals, and God's rights. They are all there. It regulates every single aspect of their life, their civil life, their moral life, their, their religious life. It is all there in the law of God. And so Paul says, you rely upon this law. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. It is to rest your hopes in. The law of God, it is to see the law as your security against the judgment to come. So they they profess their covenant, they profess their security. Third, they profess their relationship. Again, verse 17, you boast in God, you boast in God to to boast or to glory in God is a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a noble endeavor. In fact, it's commanded by God himself. Jeremiah chapter nine, verses 23, 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. And that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So their, their relationship to God is another part of their profession of what it means to be a Jew. It was their solid ground. They didn't boast in dumb idols. They boasted in the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. Fourth was their knowledge. It was their knowledge. Verse 18, and they know his will. And they know his will. Paul's not talking here about the secret will of God, of course, because if it was the secret will of God, then it would no longer be. That's correct. Secret. So it's not the secret will of God he's talking about. He's talking about the revealed will of God, that which can be known about God, because God has inherently revealed it to us through his scriptures. All right. Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So when they talk about what it means to be a Jew, they talk about their knowledge of the will of God. Now, this may be a little bit hard for us to you know, get our arms around because we're, you know, we have the Bible and we, you know, we're kind of familiar with this. But compared to the rest of the world, there is no knowledge of the will of God. So the Jewish people have this special privilege, knowledge of the word of God. And guess what? So do we. So do we. We have this same privilege. Fifth. Fifth, we speak about their discernment, their discernment. Verse 18, they approve the things which are essential being instructed out of the law. It is their discernment that is, they're able to discern that which is essential. They are able to rightly understand reality. The word uh, approve here, dokimadzo in the Greek, it has the idea of testing something to prove its value. It was a metallurgical term originally where you would essay something, gold or whatever, to determine the, the content, the purity of the metal. And so he, what Paul is saying here is that they are able to assess things and determine those things which are essential. That is, they have an ability to figure out what's the most important things in life. Isn't that an amazing gift? 
to go through life and to be able to figure out that which is important and that which is not important? How much of life is, is occupied by things that are of little importance and it sure would be valuable to be able to figure that out, wouldn't it? And Paul says they have that ability to cut it straight. They're in possession of the ability to figure out the essential. That is those things that are pleasing to God. The important things in life, what God commands, what God requires, what God prohibits, what God approves, what God rewards. And what is the basis for their ability to discern life? Look again, verse 18. Where does it come from? It comes from the law, being instructed out of the law, being instructed by the Scriptures. From the Scriptures. They know the revealed will of God and they can, they can assess the various distinctions with regard to life because they've been instructed out of the law. By virtue of their possession of the Scriptures... They have the ultimate measuring stick. They have the perfect, you know, tape measure, right? It measures exactly the truth. And all of life, you can kind of hold it up and you can measure it and you can figure it out. You do not have to go through life bumping into things all the time, trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. What, you know, kind of push on it and see if it moves and maybe I go in that direction. The Scriptures lay it out for us. Worship. Morality, ethics, marriage, parenting, business. It's all available for us here in the Word of God and it was available to them. It's their tremendous privilege. Well, Paul's going to transition here a little bit from privilege to prerogative, but it's still under this basic general heading. And that's sixth, their calling. They have a calling. And the calling is to be a disciple maker. That's their last calling. Their calling is to be a disciple maker. It begins in verse 19. Paul says, And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Paul says that you possess the oracles of the living God. You have the words of the living God. And you are confident in them. Do you see it? Verse 19. It's not just that they casually believed this. That, you know, I guess, yeah, we probably have better answers than most people. Paul says, you yourself, you notice how that he zeroes right in here. And he, and he says, you yourself, with an intensive way of speaking to them, that you are confident of this, that you are a guide to the blind. The Jews had confidence in the Word of God. In the Old Testament, they knew it was the Word of God. They would die for this Word. Confident in this. That this revealed Word of God was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right? But they failed. They failed. They failed to fulfill that which they were supposed to do. They had a mission. They knew they had a mission. They had a mission and calling of God to represent Him to the nations. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where, where Moses says to them, You are a kingdom of priests. You are to be my missionaries to the nations. You are to bring my revelation to the Gentile world. They knew that. 
And they were confident in what they what the truth was they had to bring. They didn't go into the marketplace of ideas and say, well, here's one more suggestion. Try it on for size. They went into the marketplace and said, we have the truth and the rest of you are locked in darkness. Or at least that's what they should have done. But for the most part, they kept it themselves. Right. They failed in their calling, but they knew they had a calling nonetheless. It's funny. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and do what? Offer up your Christian worldview as one more suggestion among many. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, right, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The church has inherited the missionary commission that was given to Israel. We are not to just go into the world with a happy suggestion among many suggestions. We are to have the confidence that they had to go into the world with the truth. Now, Paul outlines for us here this calling to being a disciple maker using four metaphors. You see them? Beginning in verse 19. What does it mean to... To have a calling as a disciple maker. He says you're a guide to the blind. A light to those in darkness. A corrector of the foolish. A teacher of the immature. These are just metaphors that speak of what it means to have a missionary calling. You're a guide to the blind. Because without the truth of God, the world is locked in what? Blindness. Spiritual blindness. They are, using another metaphor, those that live in darkness. Right? And so you are a light to those who are in darkness. That is, that you bring the light to bear. Jesus picks that up as well. He speaks to his, his disciples, Matthew 5. He says that you are the light, what? Of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, a light to those in darkness. Beyond that, he says that you are a corrector of the foolish. Right? Verse 20. A corrector of the foolish. That is a schoolmaster. A schoolmaster to the, 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 to the foolish. That is, that are those who, are, who don't understand the truth. They are the foolish ones. So you are to act as their schoolmaster. That is one who disciplines them. Lastly, you're a teacher of the immature. The word could be translated infants, if you like, as opposed to adults. You are the ones who are to teach the spiritually immature, the babes. You are to teach them the truth. So it's all speaking here of their calling to make disciples. And the basis for it, verse 21, see, or verse 20 rather, you have the law. The embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You possess the truth. You possess there within the scriptures that which is necessary to do all that you have been called to do. Paul says all the scriptures is inspired by God, right? And profitable for teaching, right? For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's tremendous to see the, the correspondence between that which had been given to Israel and that which has been given 
to the church. So according to Paul, the Jewish nation had it all. They had all that they needed. Right? They had the right covenants. They had the right security. They had the right relationships. They had the right knowledge. They had the right discernment. And they had the right calling. So what happened? How did it go wrong? What, what happened? How did they fail? How did it go so sinfully and terribly wrong? Well, Paul's going to turn the tables here now and he's going to begin to press home his point. He's established for them their, their, their privilege, their, their um, responsibility, and now he is going to show how they don't live up to their profession. But he's not going to do it initially by a direct accusation. Instead, he's going to utilize four questions. He's going to question them. This is, uh, I think this is masterful, by the way. Someone once said, I don't know who it was, but they once said that questions prick the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. I think that is a tremendous way to approach people. That is, you begin by questioning them and you allow their own conscience to sort of bring the accusation rather than you bringing it to them. And so that's what Paul's going to do there. He's going to, he's going to begin in verse 21, verses 21 and 22, and he's going to make four inquiries into their practice. Okay? Very simple. He's going to, he's going to inquire into their consistency first. He's just going to ask them about their consistency. So he's going to address their consistency, then he's going to talk about their honesty, then he's going to talk about their purity, then he's going to talk about their ethics. Okay, those are the four questions he's going to ask them. But first, their consistency, verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? In other words, do you practice what you preach? Okay, that's the question that he's asking them. Do you practice what you preach? Earlier, notice back up in verse 13, Paul says that it is not the hearers of the law who are just, right? But the doers of the law. So he hasn't strayed far from what his thought is that's flowing through this whole passage. Over and over again here, he's hammering home to the Jewish nation and by application to us and by further application to the young people growing up within this church that it is not what you hear, it's not what you know, it's what you do in response to what you know that evidences whether you really belong to God or not. So he begins by probing their consistency. You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? James says, James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. There is a sense in which when you stand to teach, you are responsible for what you teach. That is, you are to be putting it into practice. It's not just merely standing up as a mouthpiece. It's standing up as a person, not perfect, but a person who is striving to put into practice the very things they are teaching to others. And we're all teachers, by the way. You can't get off the hook by saying, well, I don't stand up here, so that doesn't apply to me. We're all teachers to one degree or another because we're all called to be disciple makers. So we all have a teaching ministry, whether it's mom at home with the little ones, whether it's dad at work with your co-workers or whether you're in a more formal teaching sense, wherever it is, everybody has a teaching venue. Do you practice what you teach? What do you like in private? Compared to what you're like in public. 
Paul's going to turn the heat up here a little more, okay? A little more, add a little more gas to the fire. He's going to go from this general inquiry now, and he's going to draw out two more, but he's going to specifically cite the law in which they have placed such great reliance. Okay? He does that by inquiring with regard to their honesty. Verse 21, the end of the verse. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? Eighth commandment, thou shall not steal. All right, you like the law? Let me give you the law. The law says thou shall not steal. So Paul begins by inquiring into their honesty. That's because God is concerned with the honesty of his people. And the reason God is concerned with the honesty of his people is because God is honest. God is honest. And so he calls his people to be like him. Right. You shall be holy because I am holy. You will represent me. I am honest. Therefore, I expect you to be honest. He expects it of himself and he expects it or he knows it of himself and he expects it of us. Now, when it comes to honesty, God is concerned not only that people don't get banged over the head and, you know, robbed. Okay, God is concerned that people don't get ripped off. Okay, if I can just say it that way, God is concerned that people are not ripped off. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11. It says a just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what my father used to call um, the butcher putting his thumb on the scale. Right. I don't know if you've ever kind of heard that expression when he would cut the meat. You know, he could stand behind and just kind of put a little thumb pressure on the scale and might pay for 16 ounces of meat when you only got 14, that kind of thing. So what what the, the writer of Proverbs is talking about here is that in the balance, the weights that go on one side of the scale and the, and whatever's being measured goes on the other side of the scale, that you've got to have just weights. It says it's a half an ounce weight. It needs to be a real half an ounce. All the weights in the bag, he says, are his concern. Not just the heavy ones, not just the one and two pound weights, but the one ounce weights, the half ounce weights, those are his concern too. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 25, 13, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small weight. Kind of interesting how often the Bible talks about the weights in the bag, right? Evidently, it's a real problem for merchants to have two kinds of weights, right? I've got the kind that I use for my friends and I've got the kinds I use for everybody else. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy, who do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. Okay, that's a pretty strong indictment of the nation. God is concerned about honesty. Now, The notion that people should not steal is widely accepted and widely broken. Widely accepted and widely broken. 
Now, we may soothe our conscience in this area, right? And say, well, I've never robbed a bank. I've never mugged anyone. I never stick, you know, stuck up a liquor store. So I'm not a thief. This doesn't apply to me. But that's only one form of thievery. That's only one form. Try these on for size. You steal your employer's time by taking unauthorized breaks, making unauthorized phone calls, cell phone calls at your desk, returning late from lunch. How about failing to work hard throughout the day? You're stealing your employer's time. You expect to be paid for a full day's work, right? Do you give a full day's work? We steal by wasting or using for personal reasons our employer's products and his supplies. Including things like pens, pencils, paper, paper clips, copy machine. I just got to run a couple of copies of this thing for my kids at school. Got real quiet all of a sudden, by the way. We steal when we pocket the change going through the cash register because the clerk made a mistake in our favor. We stick it in our pocket. We're stealing. When they undercharge us for something and we don't tell them. And then we have the audacity to go outside and praise God for such a good deal we got. We're stealing. That's stealing. We steal if we copy somebody's homework, turn it in under our name. We steal when we borrow something and fail to return it. See, we're all thieves. Every single one of us. We are all thieves. Not just the bank robbers. Not just the, uh, you know, cat burglars. Not just the people that are sitting in jail. We're all thieves. We preach that one should not steal. Do we steal? Paul speaks now of their purity. He inquires with regard to their purity. Seventh commandment. You who say one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Paul's inquired into their honesty. Now he inquires into their purity. Seventh commandment. Thou shall not commit what? Adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery. The Jews in the first century, they would preach loudly against Gentile abuses of marriage. Gentile adultery, polygamy, those kinds of things. They would decry it from the law. They would say how wicked and evil it was. God hates divorce, says in Malachi, and they'd be... Forcefully proclaiming it. All the while, engaging in serial adultery themselves by one broken marriage after another. They would divorce for any reason and every reason. Matthew 19, that's the context that stands behind Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him 
and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? How about us? Does that apply to us? We preach against adultery. Do we commit adultery? It's the shame of scandal of evangelicalism, by the way, that the divorce rates within evangelicalism parallel those within the culture. The Bible provides a very narrow parameter to break a marriage. It is a very narrow parameter. It is never God's intent or desire for a marriage to break. He says he hates divorce. He hasn't changed his mind. But because of the hardness of the human heart, he provides certain very narrow provisions in which the marriage can be legally broken and the partners are free to remarry. Very few divorces fall within the narrow biblical parameters. Very few. Most are because of hardness of heart. People give up. They're tired. They don't want to be married anymore. So they latch on to some excuse, but generally speaking, they're unlawful. We demonstrate a heart of adultery. We demonstrate a heart of adultery when we watch people engage in sexual activity on TV or in the movies and call it entertainment. We'll do in a movie what we would never do in real life. Can you imagine your neighbors coming and saying, why don't you come on over to our house tonight? You can watch. But people pay money to go to a movie and watch another couple engage in sexual activity. Call it entertainment. That's our heart of adultery. And that's not even getting to what Jesus said, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, these are real outward acts. Jesus, you know, rolls it back even further. And says that it really all begins up here anyway. He questions their ethics. Questions their ethics. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We're off the hook on this one, right? Okay, maybe this one doesn't apply. Uh-uh. <laughs> this, is, this is a strange uh, statement here. It really is. There's a lot of historical background. It's hard to get your arms around, figure out what's going on here. One thing we know for, for sure is that the nation of Israel absolutely abhorred idolatry. The Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. broke formal and external idolatry in Israel forever. Up to that point in time, yeah, they're falling down before stone images, carved wooden images, and everything else. Okay? But when they went into the Babylonian captivity, when God judged them through that captivity, took them 70 years in Babylon and brought them back to the land, formal, external, outward idolatry was destroyed in Israel and it has been ever since. The Jews would die rather than bow down in any form before, a, before an idol. That's the history of the nation of Israel. They would all die. The whole Maccabean revolt is all about idolatry and an unwillingness to offer sacrifice to idols. And they're willing to die for it. 
So when Paul says, you who abhor idols, that's the truth. They detested them. Detested them. But what in the world does Paul mean by this question? Do you rob temples? Do you rob temples? Is he asking, you know, does he really mean that the Jews physically robbed pagan temples? Yeah, I think, I think, I think so. I think that's part of what he's talking about. I mean, the, the evidence of that occurring, by the way, is, is a little hard to come by from external sources. But there are two passages in the uh, Scriptures, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that speak directly to this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25-26, out of the law itself. Right? Deuteronomy is given when they're on the plains of Moab, ready to cross over the Jordan River into the land. This is the second giving of the law. And there God says through Moses, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them. That is the plating. Nor take it for yourself or you will be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house and the like of it and like it come under the band. You shall utterly detest it and you shall utterly abhor it for it is something to be that is something banned. So under the law, he tells them no idols in your house. And you may not even take the gold or the jewel. You, know, you can't even pry the jewels out of the eyes and bring those into your house. Nothing. But in Acts 19, this is the interesting verse. Acts 19, verse 37. There, Paul, you remember, or, uh, Demetrius the silversmith who made the silver idols for Artemis, right? In the temple there at Ephesus. He, he creates his furor in the city. And he says that these people are here, you know, the Paul and his, his traveling companions, and they're destroying the idol business. Right? So many people are, are abandoning the, uh, the worship of, of Diana of Ephesus, and they're coming to or Artemis, however you like it, and they're coming to Christ that it's ruin in the idol business. And so the city is whipped up into a furor, and the clerk of the city of Ephesus comes before the crowd, and he says something that's really amazing. Verse 37, Acts 19. He says, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So evidently there was something known in the ancient world with regard to the Jews that they really did rob temples. Now, I don't know if it was some kind of misguided idea that, you know, hey, when no one's looking, let's go in there and rip the place off and then they won't have any of their idols to worship and we're really serving God. I don't know, was that kind of convoluted logic or not? I suspect it had to do with greed. One commentator speaks about this, and, and he says that, that the Jew would shudder when he saw an idol in, the tab, you know, in a temple, but he was willing to deal as a merchant in the plunder which men stole from temples. Kind of the idea that, you know, I'd never steal it myself, but if I bought stolen goods at the flea market... I might be willing. So I don't know. I don't know whether it's stealing them literally themselves or, or dealing in stolen merchandise in order to make a buck. But Paul's statement here, he says to his fellow countrymen, you're disgusted with idols. They disgust you. You abhor them. Unless you can make a buck off them. Now that's like us. That's like us. How often do we put our principles and religious convictions up for sale?
How about this one? How about supporting a pro-abortion political candidate because you like their tax policy? How firm do you hold your convictions? At what price can they be bought and sold? Paul turns from the indirect here to the direct. Verse 23. He bangs the gavel down on the indictment. Verses 23-24. He says, You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, it's phrased in the NASB. In fact, most translations is a question, do you dishonor God? I think the English Standard Version actually has it right here. Grammatically, I agree with them. I think it's a statement, not a question. I think it's a summary statement. You who boast in the law, that summarizes what Paul's been saying in verses 17 through 22. The second clause, uh, it provides the decisive answer to the four questions in verses 21 to 22 that he has just asked. It's not do you or through your breaking of the law, it's not do you dishonor God, it is you dishonor God. You do it. That's his indictment. It's not boasting in the Scriptures, beloved, it's obeying the Scriptures that brings honor to God. And it is hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy to claim that the Scripture is the inerrant and authoritative Word of God. Right? The only measure of truth. And then the willy-nilly, do whatever you want. It's an insult to God. How often are we conveniently biblical rather than relentlessly biblical? That is, we will follow the Word of God as long as it's, you know, we're in the same flow, but when it bumps up against us, yeah. See, that's another story. A few years ago, FBC set aside five core values. By the way, they're in your bulletin. In case you want to refresh yourself. Core value number two is determined to obey the Bible. Determined to obey the Bible. Why do we have to state that as a core value? Well, it's because it's hard. <laughs> that's why. It's hard. You have to be determined to do it. Paul finishes here, by the way, verse 24, with a citation from uh, the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, verse 5. He brings that to bear. He says, uh, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, verse 24, because of you, just as it is written. He kind of draws that forward. Isaiah 52, the... Uh, in the original context, it's, it's uh, saying that the God of Israel is being reviled among the pagan nations because they have been taken into captivity, i.e. their God was unable to protect them. And God's saying, it's, it's, Israel, it's your fault that it happened. It's, be, it, it's not that I couldn't protect you, it's that I delivered you under judgment. But my name is still being reviled. Paul kind of lifts that idea forward here and he says, now that God's name is being reviled still by Israel's failure. Their failure to live up to what they say they believe. Paul pictures it this way. He pictures the pagans saying, if this is the people of God, what kind of God must he be? 
I mean, people are like their God. That's kind of the reasoning that stands behind this. And so if, if, if the people commit these kinds of awful, awful crimes, what kind of God must they serve? Well, whatever kind of God it is, I don't want any part of him. I mean, if that's your God and you act like that, why would I want to worship your God? He transformed you into that image? I mean, this stuff is as contemporary as this morning's newspaper. Same thing. People speak about the need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Unto salvation. He's the only name. Unto salvation. And then we act like that? Like my friend 20 years ago. Oh, I see why you want to go in the ministry. Make big bucks. Ripping people off. Sad. Sad when the people whose mission it is to lead the nations in the worship of the true God, because of their hypocrisy, become the cause of the reviling of the God they claim to love. Now, we're all guilty here. Everybody. There's enough mud in this passage to smear everybody. So what do we, how do we walk away from this? What do we do? We're kind of twofold. First, we understand that what Paul was attempting to do for the Jews, the Spirit of God is attempting to do this morning in your heart too. And that is to disabuse you of your reliance on your own external works. Yes, you have great privilege. You have access to the oracles of the living God. You have a Bible on your lap this morning. The things that Paul spoke of, of the Jews, are to a great extent your heritage as well. See, but if you're relying on that, as that's somehow your entrance into the presence of God, that that's going to get you there, you're going to ride in on the coattails of that, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. That's what Paul is saying to his countrymen. You are not going to make it. You need righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. United to him by faith. That's the same message for all of us today. There's another application of this passage, and that is for those of us who have embraced Christ by faith. And that is that our lives need to show that which we say to be true. It's not going to be perfect. I know that. It's not our perfection. It's our direction. But to live with open contradictions in our lives, to live with hypocrisy and just wallpaper it over and pretend it doesn't exist and not to seek to try to do something about it is shameful. It blasphemes the name of God. Hypocrisy is an ever-present danger. Ever-present. So close to the truth 
And yet, so far. If you're a young person growing up in this church, you need to understand that you have no hope. None. You're on your way to hell. And that's where you deserve to go. If you will embrace Christ by faith, He will deliver you. If you rely on anything else, you're lost. Let's pray. Our Father, we can find ourselves in this passage in more than one place. We feel the sting of the lash. The point of the indictment. The weight of our own conscience. Lord God, we flee to the cross of Jesus Christ, for that is our only hope. Thank you for sending Christ to die for my sin. To take my place. To suffer the torments that I deserve. And to grant me His perfect obedience in whom there was no hypocrisy. That I might now be qualified to be your child. Lord, may you make the reality of that sink deep into every one of our hearts. Amen. Following this morning's service, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. If you have something that you would heavy on your heart that you'd like to talk about, maybe you have a request somebody to pray for you with regard to something, you can come. They'd be happy to pray with you. Inquiries, perhaps, with regard to baptism or church membership or any of those things. You come over there and there are folks there that want to help you. Okay? All right, why don't you come up here? We're going to skip that last song. The preacher got long-winded. And I want you to come up here and do that membership.